0: Hey guys, welcome to the show. A little bit different show today. A, no Ray, so um, <clears throat> that's a plus. No giggling. I'll have to see if I can get my special guest to giggle as much as Ray normally does. Uh, B, we're not talking about ancient history or, or or Caesars or Augustus or any of that stuff today. It's a little bit different. So feel free to turn off if you don't want to listen to it. But as many of you know... A few years ago, I wrote a book about free will, amongst other things. One of my great passions in life for the last 30 years has been the question of whether or not we have free will. And um, my guest today is somewhat of an expert on the subject. And uh, I'm very excited to be able to have the opportunity to have a chat with someone who knows way more than I do about subject, and he can correct all of the mistakes I've been making for the last 30 years. My guest today, see, there you go, he's giggling already, I'm off to a good start. My guest today, uh, Dr. Richard Carrier, probably best known, I think, for getting his Judy Gunners Mate Certificate from the United States Coast Guard in 1992, Um, but then it's all gone downhill from there, I think. (laughs) He does have a master's of philosophy and a doctorate in ancient history from Columbia University. So if we wanted to talk about the Caesars, I'm sure he'd be more than capable. But And who knows, maybe we'll get there at some point. Um, But in all seriousness, uh, Richard is, I think, best known for his work on the historicity of Jesus and his uh, um, position that one of the ways to approach ancient history is to use Bayes' theorem. He's written books on that. He's written lots of books. He's got a huge following around the world. And I was fortunate enough to spend some time with him in North Carolina recently as he's one of the uh, rock stars uh, that we uh, have on the early Christianity documentary that I'm working on. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carrier. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You see, I did my uh, homework with the Judy Gunner's Mate certification <laughs> bit that's, there.
1: That's one of many minor things I did in the
0: Coast Guard. My,
1: my major thing is I
0: was a sonar tech. I was a sub hunter. Wow. Uh, did you find the Red October? I believe it's still missing. <laughs>
1: No, we we couldn't find anything. We we had we had nineteen sixties technology or nineteen eighties passive sonar, nineteen sixties active sonar. We were we had all the, the handoffs from the navy, all the stuff that they got rid of because it was crap. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a shame you didn't find it because I always wanted to know why a Russian submarine commander spoke like this. Okay, the new lashy, <laughs> there's a moose loose about boot the hoose in the Russian submarine. <laughs> Anyhow. Um so I've. You were kind enough to send me a lot of your course materials on free will. Before we get into having a chat, um, give a plug if you would be so kind uh, for your upcoming free will course.
1: Yeah, uh, starting March first, I'm going to do a one month online course on the science and philosophy of free will. So anyone who's listening to this, you know, if you want to come in there and challenge me or argue about anything or debate anything or ask questions. Uh, that's the place to do it. Uh, and we'll have myself and students will be giving our full attention to it. There's no timed events, so you can just, uh, come and go when you have time. Uh, so it's just reading materials that you can read at your own pace and then forum discussions that are, uh, because, you know, people are paying to be there. They're quality discussions. You, you don't get trolls in there. Uh, so it's a great place to have like a really good controlled expert decision or conversation about a concept like this. And I think free will, touches on all aspects of philosophy. Um, so people who are interested in that uh, can read more about the course or the class and find the registration and all that on my website at richardcarrier.info, uh, and I have more about it there. Um, and I do different courses every month. So every month I'm doing some course. Uh, this March I am just happen to be doing the free will talk, uh, so a free will course. So yeah, you can study the primary sources. We might talk about some of them here uh, on how free will operates as a concept in law, science, medical ethics, sexual ethics, and things like that. So uh,
0: it should be neat and informative. Neat. Well, I'm always looking forward to neat <laughs> things. You, you spend much time around Bill Gates. That's one of his favorite words too, neat.
1: <laughs> well, he um, and I come from a similar background, actually. So
0: yeah, that's probably why. Really? Which one? What was well, that?
1: the the lower class uh, you know tinkering geek in the garage kind of thing
0: <laughs> he was a lower class <laughs> well you know Bill came from uh, money anyway um, let's start with uh, your background in free will when I got interested in free will from a fairly early age I was about 18 or 19 when I got interested in free will and I came at it through a sort of a Taoist or Advaita uh, introduction, and I think when we we were chatting in yeah. Durham, you said that you had a bit of a Taoist background. Yeah, Tell me more about I, that. I was
1: actually a, a really devout Taoist, uh, and when I was in the Coast Guard, even I, I lost my faith in the Coast Guard, but yeah, from you know about the age of 15 16 until I was in my early 20s, uh, Taoism was my only one true faith. I was never really a believing Christian either, so my only real religion that I was seduced by was Taoism. So I was really hardcore, like with meditation, ultra states of consciousness, the whole thing. Um, but uh, so my, my religious background is different and weird compared to most Americans who usually have this, you know, M- American atheists tend to have like this fundamentalist background where they're like pissed off at all the lies they were told as children. But I didn't have that background. But yeah, no, I had a strong uh, Taoist background and studied Confucianism as well as a sort of, um, you know, an argument against Taoism.
0: And is that when you first became interested in free will as a subject?
1: Yeah, in philosophy in general, right? So when I lost my faith in Taoism, and what Taoism gave me was this kind of complete worldview, right? Uh, so when I lost that, I was like, well, then what is true? What should my worldview be? So for me, I ended up getting into philosophy. Philosophy became my religion. So I started building out a worldview, you know, all the pieces. And then when you do, if you do that, you engage with philosophers and, and great literature and stuff like that and try to figure out what is a correct worldview. You can't avoid the free thought or the free will question because the free will question comes up and touches on every area, like from semantics, epistemology, metaphysics, politics. You know, it's, it's, it touches everything, even aesthetics. You can make a, a case that there are aesthetic attributes that are relevant to the free thought debate. So, uh, so yeah, it really was something I had to address. And so I studied it uh, and came came to a conclusion about it. And that's in my book, Sense and Goodness Without God, which I published in 2005. It took me a decade and a half to write that book.
0: Wow. I've been working on a book for six or seven years, and I feel guilty every time my publisher uh, calls me <laughs> on it. On that's it, uh, good. I can say, hey, well, hey, Carrie, it took – 15 years. Get off my back. (laughs) Um, Tell me, uh, you know, when uh, last week, when I was starting to get ready for our chat, I jumped on Facebook and I said, listen, I'm going to be doing this podcast with Richard Carey about free will. Give me your definition of free will. This is what I asked the people on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I got a whole ton of responses and they were all over the place.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But some of the people, and, you know, I've been having conversations with with people about free will for 30 years, and one of the common things that I find is that people say, well, why does it matter? Who cares whether we have it or not? Does it make any difference? I'm interested in your answer to that question. Why is it a subject that we should pay some attention to? Why do you think it's important as a subject? Uh, Well, there's two reasons. One is
1: that the religious have their own, you know, sort of flat earth version of free will that's completely false. Uh, And that a lot of their rhetoric and a lot of their worldview that we're trying to combat sort of... Fix, you know, the the way people think and get us out of, you know, medieval ways of thinking. Uh, a lot of it hinges on this sort of uh, false view of free will that that we, you know, taints everything in our culture. So we do have to kind of like fight that. That's one reason. And and there's a lot of arguments against atheism that that, that argue from free will. But you don't have free will, and this is why it's awful. And you have to sort of have a a good command of why their arguments are bullshit on that. Uh, and that, But the other side is, um, we really do need to study and understand. What kind of free will we have? How can we use it? How can't we use it? What can it do? What can't it do? And how much do we have and when? Uh, These are important questions. Uh, And so we do have to like resolve this in the same way that we need to understand consciousness correctly, get away from the folk, the popular folk view of consciousness that everyone has is sort of like point observer. I think Dennett says this point observer waiting for decisions to be made elsewhere, this sort of Cartesian theater concept of consciousness is false, but we actually have like a developed science where we understand more about how consciousness is constructed, uh, what's really going on, who you really are as a person and how that relates to your consciousness and all of this. So uh, really understanding yourself uh, and 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 that requires a better understanding of the reality of consciousness and getting away from the folk beliefs about it. And free will is the same way, like getting a a, a real science-based understanding of what free will is and can and can't do for you is important. And to get also to get away from these these folk beliefs about free will, which often lead to
0: false assumptions uh, among the public. I'm going to get to the folk beliefs in a second, but you brought up a scientific view, and I find that interesting. In reading through the material that you sent me, you're fond of writing stuff like "sinus the lousy philosophers," um, and yeah, and- <laughs> oh, they're really good philosophers
1: in the one thing they do, but when they start getting out of that then, then you have trouble and but, I yes, imagine
0: <laughs> some scientists would counter that with saying that philosophers are lousy scientists
1: but also true
0: <laughs> and you sit in an interesting place in this because on one hand you've got a background in philosophy on the other hand I know you're very pro science got a very strong hard scientific mm-hmm. approach yeah. to things um, what the free will whatever the over the last five years in particular, I've seen a huge amount of popular media articles written about the subject of free will, usually in scientific American places like that. A lot more than I've seen over the course of the last 30 years. It seems to be something that is, uh, as is the historicity of Jesus, by the way. I don't know if those two things are connected, but for some reason. <laughs> they're not, but you're right. Both have yeah, come they're, they're, they're uh, both. popular in recent times. Yeah, yeah um, right. But the, the, every article I read about free will in the popular media these days seems to be talking about it from a neuroscientific perspective, either for, for or against the views of neuroscientists. Do you think in 2018, the question of whether or not we have free will, is it really the domain of philosophers still, or is it really the domain of neuroscientists, or both, or neither, or Why? Well, both. Uh, scientists are the ones who
1: get at the facts, the bare facts of what's actually going on. But if you want to analyze those facts and how they connect to a worldview, then you need to be doing philosophy. Uh, and now most philosophers, I have to say most philosophers are garbage philosophers. They're terrible. Uh, I have I have big issues with philosophy. I did a whole talk called, um, Is Philosophy Stupid?, uh, which you can find <laughs> online, where I, where I talk about like where the merits are in philosophy and where it's gone wrong as an academic field. Uh, and where it needs to go back to basically so in terms of what philosophers should be doing and, and one of the things philosophers should be doing is science first so so basically their premises have to be based on the science they need to walk across the hall and actually talk to scientists who are actually studying the things that philosophers are talking about so that their premises are all scientifically factual and all they do with that is go beyond it and say well these are the facts that scientists have established what does that mean for us uh, and our worldview and, and that's what philosophers should be doing and and rather than just Skipping the whole looking at science bit or just cherry picking the science that they want and then building a worldview that, that sounds right to them without actually making it well and scientifically informed. And so I think that's what philosophers should be doing.
0: And, and that's what I do as a philosopher. So go to the science, find out what the science says about the data from, uh, from the uh, empirical experimental data and then yeah. say, what does it mean? Right. Because scientists, generally speaking, try and stay away from those sorts of questions. They just say, well, here's the data. And they don't try to make that (laughs) leap into what does it mean, right? Or at least they should. Sometimes
1: they do make that leap and they shouldn't. Uh, Sometimes they do make that leap and they do it competently. uh, And and then that's fine. Uh, So, yeah, I think that's where scientists do need to be better philosophers. And philosophers do need to be taking science more seriously. uh, their, Their own science education more seriously, too.
0: Hmm. All right, let's talk about the definition of free will. Now, somewhat surprisingly to me, as I read through the uh, material that you sent me, your own writings and and the writings that you recommended, I actually think that we probably agree on a lot. In fact, I think we agree on uh, the vast majority of issues. But one of the things that I didn't agree with was the statement that I read you make a number of times, and I know you've even referred to some researchers to support this statement, it's about this folk understanding of free will. And um, I'd like to talk about the definition. Uh, you know, Plato said, one of my favorite quotings, Plato said, the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. <laughs> and I yeah. think that free will in particular is the is one of the Thorniest uh, areas of trying to get a common definition that I've ever come across. Yeah, it's entirely
1: a semantic dispute. I I think in reality, there are no disagreements on the facts. Everyone of sense agrees libertarian free will is as scientifically false as a flat earth, right? So, okay, so what just stop there. Yeah. Yeah, for so a, explain for, to people what let, that means.
0: Yeah, explain to people what libertarian free will means. Yeah, and it
1: does not mean a libertarian, the American Libertarian Party politics. <laughs> uh, no, libertarian free will, uh, which you see a lot uh, in Christian philosophers especially. They're real big fans of this, um, is uh, the idea that somehow you have a soul or your mind can make decisions independent of physical causation. Somehow you can actually defy the causal laws of physics. Uh, it doesn't. I'm uh, sorry. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But this is what they they argue is that, uh, and therefore your decisions are completely completely cut free from all all causes external to yourself. So so your upbringing, uh, the the knowledge accessible to you, the the things that have happened to you, um, persuasion, all of these things that somehow you can be causally uh, divorced from these things and make decisions contrary to them anyway. Whereas, of course, the contrary view, the determinism and compatibilism, which is means that free will is compatible with determinism. Uh, so in the determinist view, um, everything, every decision you make, you can trace all the way back to the Big Bang. Like if you had a an adequate enough computer, theoretically, you could predict every decision you would make. Um, now, there's a reason why we couldn't have such a computer, but it's a completely technical reason. Uh, but you could, if you if you actually knew all the causes that were coming in on the brain, and you knew the structure of the brain and and the physics, the laws of physics that govern how the brain com- makes computations, you could predict every decision a brain will make based on the information that comes in. So, uh, and that's determinism, this idea that there's one in one set of inputs always results in one set of outputs, and that there isn't anything you can do to change that. Uh, and the compatibilist would say. Well, there isn't really any reason why you should care. Uh, there isn't any re- reason you would want to be able to do anything about that. You actually want that deterministic system because that's uh, the way that you actually get things like character and other things to actually cause the actions that you're doing.
0: Okay. And uh, what definition of free will do you think the general public Usually has well in your experience. I don't think it's just
1: like consciousness I don't think the general public has a coherent definition. They they don't really they've not studied this They've not thought about it. If you ask someone on the street They're gonna just confabulate something on the spot like they haven't really thought it through Um, What you want to do is you want to look at not what they sort of like imagine in their heads They think they mean by free will what you want to do is observe how they behave What decisions do they make about how do they decide when free will exists and when it doesn't what are they keying on? What data are they deciding makes the difference between Whether free will exists or not and you can observe their behavior and figure out how their brain is actually processing this what their brain is actually acting as if free will is uh, Completely apart from what they consciously think they're doing
0: So do you think most people assume that they do have a level of free will Yes, in some
1: sense. Uh, As Dennett points out and others, there have been a number of philosophers, and I have some examples that I'll use in my course for people who come in, um, where there have been a variety of studies that have analyzed this, that, that you can get a libertarian free will concept or a compatibilist free will concept out of average people depending how you frame the questions uh, and, and, and what options you give them. So uh, people work with both versions in their heads all of the time because they just don't think very deeply about these things. And one of the problems is, is that people confuse, of course, determinism with fatalism. So one thing you say, like if you, if you describe determinism like I just did before, people will go, oh, well, then there's, there's no decision I can make that will change the course of my future. And it's like, well, no, actually your future is entirely decided by decisions you make. <laughs> those, those will change your future. Uh, so there's a difference between determinism and fatalism. And that difference is hard to grasp for people who haven't been thinking about this stuff. So your average person on the street is going to be confused when you pose them the difference between determinism and fatalism. Uh, It it takes some work to actually navigate why they're different
0: things. Well, can you just uh, spend a couple more minutes on that? What is the difference between determinism and fatalism? Well fatalism an example of that would be a criminal for
1: example say you're let's say you're a thug you're a, you're a gangster or something and you're going to go to prison for a few years and you're making a decision or you're thinking about what to do with your life like that kind of thing now you could say like uh, oh determinism i have no free will therefore i'm just always going to be a criminal i can never decide to not be a criminal because that's what uh, society and my past have made me into and i can't make a decision that would change that that's false Uh, But determinism would be, you know, so let's say, for example, a counselor comes to you and say, hey, you know, you could make better decisions and you'd have a better life. Here's some data to show like when you get out of prison, you could actually uh, become a better person, be a happier person, uh, find more fulfillment and satisfaction in life if you make these different decisions and move away from uh, the criminal life that you are in. Uh, And then that conversation causes that person to process that data and they realize, oh, yeah, shit, I'm going to do that. And they make a decision and they change their life. And so it's still determinism. You still had to have something, some piece of information had to basically collide with them physically to get them to thinking about the options. And and then they had, you know, their, their predestination in their brain. Their brain has a rational uh, processing system in it that's, you know, born into them from genetics. And then there's all these other aspects of what makes them capable of processing this information and making a decision. And, uh, but they can make a decision to change. If you, if you actually think uh, that, oh, it's tragic that I can't make a decision that will change my future, you've actually got it wrong. As moment, the moment you are thinking that, you actually have the power to make that decision. Now, you, you were caused to make that decision by your realization of that fact, and that realization comes from somewhere. Something caused you to think about that. Uh, but that's irrelevant. Uh, you can still change your future. You, you are not fated to be one thing or another uh, in the sense that people mean.
0: Right. Although I would argue that the 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 criminal who listens to the counselor and makes the decision to change his behavior that is a causal process. Yes, so absolutely. that so that's why it's determined it's, it's determined, ter- a, it's determined.
1: causes. You can't just spontaneously do that. Even if you do spontaneously mm-hmm. do that, there's some causes underneath there that you could trace out as to what information hit. Maybe, you know, Colliding with the environment and led them to come to that conclusion on their own without encountering a counselor. But something had to cause them to think a thing. Once you've thought a thing and you give assent to it and say, that's the thing I want, well, that's all you need at that point. You've been caused to make a change in your life. And so determinism and fatalism are not the same thing. Fatalism is using determinism as an excuse to not make choices. Whereas determinism just tells you that, yeah, you're limited in the choices you can make based on what information is actually colliding with you, which in and of itself can cause you to actually start making sure you collide with more information so you can make better decisions. Uh, And now there are some senses which even that's not true, but that's getting on a digression on uh, the psychology of decision making. But uh, it's still causal, and you you have to understand the causal mechanisms. That's why education is so important. Uh, you, You can't expect someone without an education to make good decisions in their life. I mean, they might do, but they're going to make better decisions with an education. So putting education there is actually causing people, some people, more people than would be the case otherwise, to make better decisions in their lives and and so on. So causal understanding is really important to how we organize society, how we react to people, how we judge people. Um, What they've been caused to do is important to know. Uh, and in what ways have they been caused to do certain things? And and that, that gets us to how do we judge different types of free will, different degrees of free will? When is someone to blame for something and when are they not? Which is a whole other uh, area of discussion. So before we get into that, give me your definition of free will. Well, I usually define it just as getting to, the freedom to do what you want. Uh, and uh, another way I put it is uh, not having someone else's will substituted for your own. Uh, is if, if that's the case, then you have free will. Um, or, uh, but it's more important to look at it from the perspective of getting to do what you want. So like, for example, if, if a car bumps into you and pushes you off a cliff, you did not have free will in the choice to fall off that cliff. Uh, but if you process the information, you make the decision to jump off, well, then you did have free will. You did act on, on that. And then there's a whole, there's the middle cases as to if someone's persuading you to jump off the cliff, how much is that depriving you of free will? Or if they are lying to you, or uh, if they are uh, pressuring you or or threatening you, for example, threatening to torture you or something, unless you jump off the cliff, uh, is that depriving you of free will? And that's where we get into the applications of free will as a concept in terms of how we judge people and how we organize society. So that's where it enters into medical ethics and legal decisions and so on. So that's a compatibilist's position. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. If I say free will is the freedom to do what you want, uh, that is definitely a compatibilist because the determinist the, or the anti-compatibilist would say, well, then your desires are causing you to do everything you do. And I was like, well, yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's that's the reality. You're not going to do something that you don't have the desire to do uh, unless somehow you're being caused to do it by something other than a desire, which gets into you know coercion, uh, physical force, and so on.
0: I like what one of the papers you sent me described compatibilism as a, a gutless, namby-pamby, and flimsy attempt to have one's cake and eat it too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's what some critics will say. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and that's the way I've always felt, particularly reading Dennett's stuff. In, I just want to spend some time thinking... I think most people I've spoken to... Okay, and that's over obviously a obviously limited data set, but it's a lot over thirty years. As anyone who spent any time with me knows, yeah, spent enough time with Cam, a couple of hours, and he's gonna end up talking about free will. <laughs> to the annoyance of everybody, usually. <laughs> but the here's what I found, and I'm interested to see how this maps against your experience. Most people I speak to have that um, what you define as the the Christian idea yeah. of free will. Yeah. They do seem to think that they are in, either entirely or mostly free to choose their decisions and their actions that lead from mm-hmm. those. And when I have a conversation with them and I'll talk about, well, your brain is made of chemicals and chemicals obey the laws of chemistry and the laws of physics and blah, 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 and the Big Bang and trace it back, normally they will um, get furious for suggesting that uh, they don't have free will in the first place. I've had some people say, "Uh, if I really believed that, I would kill myself right now. And I go, well, (laughs) maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. Whatever you did, you'd have no choice over the matter. But normally... When I can get people to the point where they, after an hour or so, where they say, okay, everything that you're saying sounds right, sounds scientifically correct. Okay, maybe I don't have complete free will, but I still think I do. Uh, Okay, but I've just demonstrated that you don't. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I just think I do anyway. Yeah. And I'm going to stick with it. And I go, okay, well... Good luck with that. Let's <laughs> see how that works well that, out for you. You
1: know, I, I have a tip for you. So the next time you get in that conversation,
0: and maybe you've done this before, I don't know, maybe you've
1: already run, run, gone down this particular path before, which is when you get to that point, or maybe even before, like, like start from the gate doing this, uh, is ask them, like, what are they worried about? Like, if, they, if, if they're if, they saying, like, they, they're refusing to accept what you're telling them, what, what is it actually that bothers them? Like, what are they afraid of? and I'll give you an example like one of the things they'll say is like well I don't like the idea of feeling like I'm a puppet that someone else is making decisions for me and it's like well actually that's not what determinism says it's, it's, there's no like master puppet master who's controlling you like a robot or a drone who do you think is making decisions for you it's not some other person it's still you you're still making decisions but the question is how you make those decisions is based on the information you have so if you if you have some missing information if someone doesn't tell you a thing that's a really crucial piece of information you're going to make the wrong decision and, and everybody agrees it, like, yeah, that's right. Like, if, I, if someone withholds important information from me, I can only make a decision based on what information causes me to do. Uh, and then they start to realize that information is causing everything they do. Well, information combined with desires, right? So it all comes from that, and then you can start tracing it back. Well, your desires go all the way back to other things, and there have been moments in your life where you've chosen which desires to have, but there are core desires that you didn't choose. Um, you know, the, your desire to, to live and enjoy life is not something you actually choose, really. Uh, so there, you know, the desire to to eat food, like your need, your hunger, you know, it's like you don't really choose to be hungry or not hungry. That just happens. So there's a lot, there are desires that are core desires, but you still use those within combination with information to build other desires. So the point I would go at is like, get them to think through like, what actually are they afraid of? Like what bothers them about it? So when they say like, oh, I refuse to just believe that I'm just going to go on believing that I have free will. It's like, well, what, what is it that you're scared of? Like, what are you running from that you think that solves the problem and once you get to that you can actually walk them through the chain of causes to the point where that you they'll realize like just like socrates would always do get people to realize they always knew the thing the answer all along uh you just walk them through it and they start to realize oh okay well i just believe the same thing you do uh i was just worried about this other thing that might happen and it's like but actually that's not what we're saying and so i think determinism it's that fatalism trap that people think that determinism means things that it doesn't really
0: yeah, no, I, I've had those conversations many times, and you're right, they have these uh, sort of fears that they can't quite process. One of them, of course, is, well, if it was true that no one has free will, then i just go around and rape and kill and murder, and, <laughs> and i go, really? Makes really? any sense. I'm sorry. That, that's... <laughs> so... Um, the only thing that's stopping you from killing me and raping me right now, either in that order or the reverse order right now, is because you believe you have free will. Yeah. Should I be worried? Should I be looking right. for the exit right now? And yet you oh. know
1: that's false, right? You know that, that that's their, <laughs> that's their so. conscious report. This is the problem that psychologists have all the time in studying people, is that self-report is a massively unreliable method of gathering data about how people are, what they're actually thinking and why. So that when people say that, oh, I'm not running around raping and murdering only because I believe in free will, it's like, actually, that's not true. So let's let's actually explore what the real reason is that you're not running around doing those things. Like, what, what do you think actually is the reason? And get them to start exploring that. And you can say, yeah, well, OK, now you're talking about your upbringing. That's a system of causes that you didn't choose, uh, you know, which parents you got. Maybe you could have been born into a family that taught you to be like a murderous Nazi, right? Like, so it's like, how do you? deal with that. And I think there's, uh, th- some fears will come up in that is this assumption. Of, oh my God, it's like random chance as to whether I'm a Nazi or not. Uh, and, and it's like, you can get to the question of, well, there are ways to actually think that you can actually escape these traps. If, if you were like raised a Nazi, you can get out of that. Uh, but you have to actually have been caused. In other words, you have to have been taught how to think critically. For example, if you were never taught how to do critical thinking, you would ne- you were never even told that you could question, the things being told you by your parents for whatever. You were never even told how to question what your parent, like what skills to use to actually investigate whether their claims are true or good or not. Uh, If you're never given those skills, then you're going to be trapped in that worldview. And then people will start to realize like, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, of course people need to be taught that or told that. They're not just going to spontaneously figure it out. Some people might, but not a lot of people are going to figure that out spontaneously. And even when they do, they were caused to by something. Uh, And that's all causal systems that we're talking about. So uh, once you can start leading people to understand that they understand causal reality, uh, the causal determinism, and and they actually live their lives according to it all the time, then you can get them out of these fears, and then they can start to realize, like, oh, Cameron, shit, you were right all along. Uh, I just what I mean by free will is something different than what you were talking about. But that's, uh, I think, the other way of going around uh, in doing that.
0: One of the other things that common responses i get is well if that were true i would just sit i just lie in bed all day and wouldn't do anything <laughs> like really <laughs> just try that for a while see how it yeah, goes exactly um, like ask them why
1: why would you want to do that do you really want to do that because uh, and you say like what are the reasons you don't do that and they'll start listing all these things they want and things they want to do and why that would be boring and all of this stuff and say yeah you're ta- you're describing systems of causation uh so you're not really coming up with a reason to be against what i'm telling you And I think it's because people associate that term free will with these other things, this idea of being a puppet, this idea of it's just random chance, uh, this idea that uh, reason doesn't, none of my decisions are therefore rational. It's like, these are not correct conclusions to draw. If free will doesn't exist in the sense that you're talking about, you still make rational decisions, or you can in any case. Uh, there still is a difference between rational decision-making and irrational decision-making. There, these, So these things still exist. Free will doesn't take those things away or give them to you either. Um, but th- that gets to the semantics issue of, of what you mean by free will. And you're talking, of course, about uh, contra-causal free will, this libertarian free will, this ability to somehow divorce yourself from causes. Uh, whereas I look at the real world, and I think this is one thing philosophers should do, is we got to... Embrace the real world primarily, rather than live in the ivory tower, and look at how are the concepts of free will being used in the real world. How is the term free will used in courts of law, and how that's actually affecting decisions that people are making that are actually affecting human lives, right? So this is where it's actually impacting the world and changing the world as to how people use the concept of free will. So it's really important there. And when you go look in those places, and another example is medical ethics. This idea of how do we decide when a patient has free will in deciding between alternative medical treatments, uh, or when do we decide that we can actually, uh, violate their free will because they're not competent to make their own decisions. I mean, these are, these are decisions that actually affect human beings, uh, and how we define free will and how we decide where and when it exists and when it doesn't really affects outcomes. It affects who goes to jail. It affects, uh, who gets committed to an institution, who gets, uh, to uh, refuse a medical treatment and who doesn't, uh, th- these kinds of things. So when we look in the real world, I think we start to see free will more often is actually used in practice in a compatibilist sense. Uh, and I say in practice because it's it's not like people actually, what, what people say they're doing is different from what they're actually physically doing. When you see the decisions they're making and how they're making them, you can see that they're making them on the assumption that free will is compatibilist. And I, and I think that's why uh, I go with free will compatibilism, and I see it as – in the same way that I see – and D- Dennett has made this analogy too – is consciousness, is that the, the average person has a completely flawed and incorrect idea about what consciousness is and who they are as a person, what actually forms their identity uh, as a person. And science can can correct them on that because they're like, actually, well, it's not that consciousness doesn't exist. Consciousness exists. You are conscious. Uh, you exist. You are a person. You have attributes and so on. It's just what constitutes those things and how they work are different from what you think. And so the goal should be to educate people to have a more scientifically accurate understanding of consciousness rather than telling them that consciousness doesn't exist. Uh, And I think free will is the same way. I think it would be better to teach people what science tells them about the kind of free will they really have and why it's important to understand that uh, and, and not tell them that they should just reject free will because um, you're not giving them anything to replace it with. There's got to be something that – that because they, they, they see there's a difference between being physically forced to do something and making a decision for themselves or being manipulated or being honestly persuaded. Like th- these people recognize there's differences between these two scenarios. And one they recognize as respecting their freedom and one they recognize as not respecting their freedom. And so there has to be some concept we have in society that distinguishes between these two situations. And so far in practice it's been the term free will. Uh, or versions of that autonomy just means, you know, free will and in, in Greek, but so, uh, you know, self, self uh, rule, self governing. Um, so autonomy is the same way, you know, so there's whatever word you come up with, it's going to have the same issues as free will. So there, there isn't really like a semantic preference over free will. I think it's just easier, people already have the concepts going, they're already applying it in their lives. And many of them are already doing it in a compatibilist way. So I think we should just get out there and educate them So they do it smartly. So they do understand how important causation is in decision making, which gets people to respect education, gets people to uh, be more patient with other people in terms of, well, this person hasn't been taught how to think critically. Why am I assuming they would just magically know how to think critically? Uh, And that's a kind of correct way to think about the free will problem uh, that actually gets you somewhere uh, and is useful. And so I think that's what we should be doing in terms of the free will debate.
0: Actually, I think there is a far greater consequence of whether or not one believes in contra-causal free will. But I'll leave that to later. Before we get to that, I want to talk about a couple of issues that always come up, and I'll get your responses Mm -hmm. to them. When I'm talking about determinism and its uh, role in how we think, one of the classics is people go, ah, well, quantum mechanics, (laughs) quantum indeterminacy, my friend. Oh, shit! Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Now I've got my stock responses to that but I'd like to hear your responses to that. Well, oh what about quantum determinacy? I'd say so you're a follower of Deepak Chopra, I hear.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Copy copy, exactly. Right? Like it's uh, the brain is a macro system. Obviously it's not a quantum wave function that's, you know. <laughs> your decisions are not quantum events. So that just like, just Stop. We're just done on that. There's no, there's nowhere further to go on that argument. Uh, I know there are, there are philosophers and this is another example of philosophers misusing science. And I call, I consider this pseudoscience where they try to actually build out this idea that no, the free will really does exist. It's quantum phenomenon. It's like, there's no, literally no scientific evidence, not only to support that, there's not even any scientific evidence that makes that plausible. (laughs) so no you can't rescue that and, and you wouldn't want to this is the other thing I, I point out in my book sense and goodness without god and and i provide all the sections from that for free uh in uh, in my course in march so people can read these things but I, I point out this this particular fact that even if that were a thing let, let's say there's some a scientist invents a device uh it's like there's some new futuristic device we can implant in your brain that will literally it. Turn turn into turn your decisions into quantum mechanical phenomena, so they'll be random. Like they'll, they'll be actually you'll actually get quantum indeterminacy in your decisions, and uh, and you can compare your life or like your life without the, this attachment and your life with the attachment. And if you have someone really think this through and you actually build through, like what would your decisions be like? Let's let's actually look at the differences between the two versions of you and see how their lives turn out uh, people would be fucking terrified of the quantum indeterminacy attachment. They'd say like, Oh shit, I don't want that. Uh, of course I don't want to have my decisions randomized. I want my decisions to be based on the reasons. I want it to be based on reasoning and based on my character. I don't want to have all this good reasoning and all this good information and, and, and my, you know, my, my solid character and stuff to make a decision. And then this device come in and just randomize my decision and make it something else. Uh, that, that doesn't make any sense. Right. So you, you can't, you can't rescue any coherent version of free will that way. Uh, and that that's one way to sort of get people thinking uh, how causal their decisions are and how much they need causal determinism in order to be free. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's really fundamental.
0: <laughs> need causal determinism in order to be free. That's, that's great. <laughs> right. Yes.
1: You need, you need logic, right? So uh, if, if take there's a good example, like logic, you have premises. There's only one conclusion that can be true if you're following a a logically valid argument. Mm. Uh, But that's determinism, right? You've got two pieces of information. You've got only one conclusion. That's Mm. it. If you want to be rational, that's it. That's your decision. Uh, So you need causal determinism. You you don't want to have a perfectly logically valid argument, and then at the last minute, at the end there, Mm. some quantum indeterminism... uh, activates and makes you make the wrong decision like that doesn't make any sense uh so if you want to be a rational person you want determinism you need determinism you should be scared of indeterminism if anything mm.
0: i think um a couple of things i always point out is uh, a. obviously you haven't really read much about quantum mechanics apart from maybe Deepak Chopra's book <laughs> secondly as you say Erwin Schrödinger himself, in his book "What Is Life," said that uh, quantum indeterminacy has got nothing to do with yeah. consciousness and the way the brain works. And thirdly, again, yes, quantum indeterminacy—if you know the Copenhagen model—is is correct means there are it's random. Randomness is not what most people believe by free will. Most people believe, I think, the ability to think and act uh, yeah. without causality, outside of causality. Uh, not a compatible yes, view. I'm yes. talking about people, uh, folk view, Christian view, and that's not randomness. Randomness is yeah. random. It's not yeah. control. Well, it's it's the opposite. You get them
1: to think through that, think that through, though, and they'll start to realize that it that there's no just, there's no other possibility. It's either deterministic or
0: random. Yeah. There's no that's you know kind of ran about them where they want to punch me in the face. Usually, well, yeah, it's, you got to
1: go Socrates, and Socrates, everybody wanted to punch him in the face too. So that's. <laughs> Because he would do the same thing. He would ask these questions and he would really annoy people. And What about this? Well, What about this? And like, fuck. Because people don't think these things through. It's it's true. People have these set ideas that are very ill thought out, very shallowly thought out, uh, and often are just absorbed by osmosis from the culture, which is interesting because that's exactly what someone who believes in free will should be most interested in knowing about themselves, is how much they are actually being caused to think a certain way by cultural assumptions that they haven't examined, and therefore how important it is to examine those assumptions. Uh, and so that's, you know, this, this idea of if you really are into free will, you really need to think more about how, where are your ideas coming from? Uh, are, are they just shit that you just absorb randomly uh, throughout the course of your, your life through, from your culture and stuff that you haven't actually examined, whether they're sensible or coherent or not? Uh, so I think that you can really turn someone around on that if you, if you figure out how to um, Socratically
0: engage them. Yeah, and it worked out so well for Socrates. Um, <laughs> you know, the, oh, snap! Yeah. Uh, the, the,
1: uh, well, fortunately, we live in countries with human rights, so I think we're all right on that. But uh. Really?
0: Don't you live in the United States? <laughs> yeah, I realize. Barely. I, I'm barely a country with human rights. but uh. <laughs> Barely hanging on there. Um, you know, the funny thing about the free will discussion I always find is that the people I normally end up in discussions with about it are atheists. But it is the atheist version of God. It's the God of the gaps things. They have the free will of the gaps. You get into a conversation with a good fundamentalist Christian, and you lay some some naturalism or scientific evidence on them, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much science you throw at them. They're still going to go, yeah, but I still think God exists, you know, or, or, or if you throw some historicity of Jesus arguments at them, they go, yeah, but I still believe everything in the Bible is inerrant, etc." Um, it's the same with free will, with people who consider themselves to be rational thinkers, critical mm-hmm. thinkers. You take them through all of the reasons why their thinking is causally determined, and they'll go, well, yes, all of that, I can't argue against all of that, but I still think I have free will outside of causality. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's akin to the... It's such a core part of their identity, I think, as belief is God is to fundamentalist believers. It's kind of like they can't. So there's a force field; they yeah. can't get through it. They get it's close and they bounce off. It's cognitive
1: dissonance, right? Uh, and and yeah, I think exactly. it's a common cause in both cases. I think it's fears. There, there are some underlying fears there, and that's the case for the believers in God. There's fears; they're they're afraid of what it means if there is no God, uh, and it turns out you know all of us who have gone to the other side on that are like. Oh, okay, that's not scary at all. This is actually totally fine uh, to not have a god. Uh, but they have the, these, you know, ideas in their head of the, these terrors and fears that they have of what oh my god, you know, my life will be meaningless or like you said like I'll just I would have my life would have no purpose if there wasn't free will. It's just like saying my life would have no purpose if there was no god. It's like actually exactly. that's not what's going to happen. So so you yeah, you do that's the thing it's really emotional and you do have to get someone to confront their fears. You have to actually get them to figure out what, what are what is what are they afraid of? Like what is actually the fear? That's preventing them from accepting this concept. Um, Can we, then, like you said, some some people you run into like they say, "Well, who cares? I don't really care." Uh, and those are people who who just don't care. <laughs> They've gotten over <laughs> the fears and just don't want to think about it because that's work and thinking is work, and they don't you know don't want to bother. But uh, but everyone else, yeah, it's fears. You you got to go at the fears and figure out what, what what fears are you dealing with and and how are those resolved in a in a real science based world.
0: Now you mentioned. The legal um implications of this before, and this is the other one of the other very common um, retorts that I get from people. Well, if yeah. that were true and we have no free will, you know there would be no justice system, it would all fall <laughs> apart uh, you know cats and dogs would be raining from the skies and <laughs> Like, well, actually, no. And if you go back a couple of hundred years ago, our legal system was predicated on people being possessed by the devil. And we (laughs) kind of got over that. We moved on with a more scientific view of human behavior. And I think we we will continue to evolve, hopefully. There's a lag there. But talk to me about your perspective on the question of Free will, particularly as you agree with me, that the way that we think is causally determined, what are the implications of that on our legal system?
1: Yeah, uh, and I want to call attention again to how similar these reactions are. So you're talking to, you talk to people who are believers in God and they say, oh my God, if there's no God, then I will be like raping and pillaging and murdering people. And and, and like the whole fabric of society would fall (laughs) apart if there's no God. And, And of course, we know that's not true. So it's interesting when when you say like you run into atheists who do this who put free will in the same role of God as like, oh if you take free will away, we're gonna be raping and pillaging and the whole fabric of society will fall apart. And it's like, actually no, you're acting just like a Christian does with respect to God. Like if, if they really thought it through, they'd realize that you don't really need God to have a really strong, robust fabric of society, uh, and and to have like moral character and want to have moral character and all of that, and it's the same with the free will question. When we get to law, uh, it, there's a lot of different angles to this, so it depends on which you know particular thread you start pulling. But uh, one of the common examples is that people say, and and this is because a lot of people watch TV cop shows and they think the law works the way TV shows show, and that's not how the law works at all. But the, they'll say like, ah, oh, but. The insanity defense, like that means that an insanity caused you to do a thing, but that would mean if, if all your actions are caused, then then everyone has a defense. Everyone is off the hook. And it's like, no, that's that's literally not how the law works. The law does not say if you have an insanity that caused you to act, that that is a defense. It actually isn't. That's not the insanity defense. The insanity defense is actually much more specific. You can have all kinds of madnesses, and they can all have caused you to act, but that, none of those, you can't appeal to any of those and get off. In standard Western jurisprudence anyway, uh, the the um, model penal code that's been adopted by all Western nations from Germany to the U.S. I'm sure Australia is probably even based on the model penal code. Uh, that whole legal system and even from English common law behind it and even continental law behind it uh, is all based on this idea that, that the insanity defense, only certain things uh, exempt you. Uh, and it's interesting to study that. This is one thing that we do a whole unit on it in my March course, in my free will course, is looking at this Is like why are certain kinds of insanity uh, regarded as defenses uh, that get you off the hook and why are others not? And and it really does get you to discover what it is we're really trying to get at uh, with free will in the legal system. So what we want to figure out in the legal system is, is who do we want to punish, uh, who do we want to hold accountable for things, and who do we want to like uh, – let go. Like say, okay, okay, yeah. There's no way you could have prevented that. We're not gonna like put the hammer down on you for that. Uh, and and it's really, you know, it's golden rule is like, what kind of system would we want to be ground under by? Is one that like is sympathetic to us, or or one that like just like you know throws us in prison for for you know accidentally being pushed into someone, for example. Uh, so so when we're thinking in these terms, uh, what what people say when we look at um, the insanity defense, it's Uh, there are two conditions under which insanity will exempt you from uh, uh, responsibility under American jurisprudence and most other uh, Western legal systems that I know of, Uh, Germany for sure, I've I've verified the German system works the same way, Uh, is that um, if the insanity prevented you from knowing what you were doing uh, was wrong. So for example, if you're hallucinating someone physically attacking you and you act in self-defense – and it turns out that you were hallucinating, but you can't control the hallucination. You were acting correctly on given the information you had. Yes, of course, we want a society in which people are allowed to defend themselves. There is no way you could have known that the person that you were attacking was not actually attacking you. Uh, so you lacked knowledge. You lacked knowledge of what you were doing was wrong. So you actually thought you were doing the right thing. Even according to our whole legal system, it's like, yeah, even according to your legal system, what you did was right. There wasn't any way that you could have known that what you were doing was wrong. We're gonna give you a pass. Uh, and the other one is if it actually prevents your will from being enacted. Like if you actually, so for example, epilepsy is a common, uh, example for this. There, there are other more subtle and complex examples, but if you get into an epileptic fit and it causes you to push a button that results in someone getting injured because of some machine or something, uh, we're going to say, well, actually you didn't choose that. That was like, you did not consciously say, I want to push this button. You lost control of your body. You didn't have control of your body. So we're going to give you a pass. And what's the, the similarity in both of these is that we're judging the character of the person. It's the character of the person did not cause the action in either one of those cases. Well, it caused it in the self-defense case, but it caused it to act correctly. So we're not going to punish you for acting correctly. You had incorrect information. There wasn't anything you could do to avoid that incorrect information. We're giving you a pass on that. And then the epilepsy example is like you, your character didn't cause it. You didn't push the button negligently. You didn't push the button maliciously to harm someone. Uh, So we're going to give you a pass on that. So what we're really looking at is, did you as a person knowingly cause the thing? Did you knowingly make the act, choose the action and the outcome that resulted? And so we really want to like get at that. That's what we want to control. We want to actually influence people to make the right decisions. And we give people passes when the system doesn't work that way. And so the insanity defense isn't a, if it caused you, you get off. And I think that results in a lot of people making these assumptions about free will. Is like, oh, if you say there's no free will, then everyone is caused to act a certain way. Therefore, everybody has a defense against every crime, yada, yada. And that's just not how, even in practical reality, our jurisprudence works. Our jurisprudence is really well-crafted around a compatibilist understanding of free will.
0: So from a, the way I normally approach the um, legal discussion with people is to say, listen, if we accept that the way people think and act is a result of their thinking and is wholly determined by their neural architecture at the time and all of the antecedents that led to that uh, neural architecture, Um, then from a legal perspective, if someone's brain is making them commit acts that society deems unacceptable, from white-collar crime through to murder and rape, whatever. Yeah. Um, The the way I would approach that is by saying, look, their brain is functioning in a way that means that their actions are unacceptable to society. We have to set some boundaries as to how we live together. I'm not blaming them for that, so I'm not punishing them for that. I don't think they are deliberately acting that way. I believe that they are acting that way as a result of the architecture of their brain. I've still still want to remove them from society mm-hmm. to for their own benefit and for the benefit of everyone around them.
1: Yeah, if I'm they gonna can't wanna- self control, yeah, but that's different. Yeah. Like having someone institutionalized for a mental illness is different from putting them into the criminal justice system, into the penal system, uh, and that that's we do make that distinction. Uh, if, if like someone literally can't control their body, let's say like you're. Uh, like you, you, you're like, um, what is the character in being John Malkovich? You're you're inside the brain, but you can't control the body. Something else is. Uh, yeah, we have to control that, and and then it was like, well, if we can figure out a way to get you out of there so that you can actually get control of your body again, then great. Uh, and usually that means uh, psychotropic drugs. But <laughs> um, but we're what we're looking at though is you said like they're not deliberately doing it, but yes, people are sometimes deliberately doing it. like so. For example, sociopathy, psychopathy. Is not a you can't do an insanity defense even if you can absolutely establish that a person is psychopathic according to the DSM uh, criteria, the psychological scientific criteria. You are a psychopath. You actually have that mental illness. It is not a defense under criminal law because you're still acting maliciously. You actually you're you are deciding and choosing and wanting to have the results that you're causing, and that's what we decide. That's what we want to punish. Is we want to we want to and police and punish that, and we do blame people for that because they are deliberately choosing to do those things. And, you know, the psychopath would say, oh, yeah, but I, I had these genes that made me a psychopath. It's like, well, it doesn't really matter because that's not what really we're, we're looking for. Um, we're interested in that. If we can, like, stop that in the womb, for example, if we can pluck those genes out, we'll, we'll study that. But that can't help you. Right now we just – you're just an awful person. Uh, and so we're actually going to judge a person based on that. We're, we're, the, how, what made them, what caused them to be the monster that they are doesn't make them not be a monster anymore. And that's the difference between, for example, someone who is a monster, like a, a psychopath who's a psychopathic murderer, and someone who's hallucinating and actually is acting on a good character and doing bad things without even realizing that they're doing it. And those are Those are two different things, and we need the ability to tell the difference between those two things. And that's – free will plays part of the
0: role in that. But that's – but my argument is that even with the psychopath, they are a psychopath because their neural architecture is making them be a psychopath. Yeah. They they are not responsible for the neural architecture. Uh, And if we accept that they – if we accept that causal free will, let's say Mm -hmm. that, that you have the ability to think and act, but it's all determined by, you know, your neural architecture – which is a result of your genetics and everything that's ever happened to you in your life and what somebody said to you five minutes ago, it all goes into your brain and is, takes the form of some sort of biochemical architecture. Yep. That, um, that person didn't choose to be a psychopath. They are a psychopath, and we need to treat them as a psychopath. Yep. We need to protect society from them. But there's a big difference in the mindset of how we do that. They're not choosing – they didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, 35 years from now, I want to be a psychopath and work (laughs) towards that. Their brain's fucked up, essentially, according to the norm. Maybe they're Steve Jobs and they're a psychopath and they're going to do great things and it's (laughs) fucked up, but it has some good or some bad consequences. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah, I see what you mean.
0: But but this – different mindset. I'm not saying this is where the legal system is today, but I think that is perhaps where we'll get to. We'll say, listen, okay, uh, Cameron, you committed a bunch of murders. Obviously, your brain's not functioning correctly according to the norm. We can't allow you to keep going killing and raping people. Okay, maybe they deserved it, uh, but you still, still got to let you do it. Maybe you're Dexter. We can't still <laughs> let you do it. We're going to have to grab you and... But but the difference is, I think, in my mind, when we have this view that you deserve, you deliberately mm-hmm. chose to do these things, you deserve to be punished. It's the retributive, retributive aspect. Retributive, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus, hey, your brain is fucked up. Let's uh, take you out of society and study your brain, trying to figure out how it's fucked up, when it became fucked up, and yeah. what we might be able to, might be able to do about it. A, for you... And B to catch people whose brains are also fucked up like yours, catch them before yeah, I, they walk into a school with an AR fifteen and I agree. kill seventy Yeah, people. I
1: agree. Uh, ultimately, some point in the future, we're not we're not evolved enough culturally to do this now. But at some point in the future, yes, I think all crime should be medicalized, uh, seen as a medical problem. Uh, it's just that the the kinds of things that uh, you get, so you can have psychopathy as one particular thing, but you can also have people who are just raised. And, and go through certain experiences that make them think they're supposed to do certain things. And it's not really – you can't really nail it down to a specific mental illness per se. They just have incorrect information. They've processed it incorrectly. And it's – and one way that you can prevent that is by making them know. Basically, you give them causal information. You, you cause them with this information. You say, if you do these certain things, we are going to do these things to you that knowledge, just knowledge that you could go to jail, the knowledge that you can be uh, fined for something, the, the knowledge that there can be a punitive aspect to it is actually causal. It actually deterministically causes you, uh, and it causes, you Now, some people won't do those things anyway. Some people will be caused to not do those things by the information that there will be consequences to doing them. Uh, and then you have the small percentage of people that aren't caused uh, by that information to refrain from doing it and do it anyway. And then, of course, then we have the the rest of the criminal justice system to deal with them, so it is it is definitely in that sense. It's in in a way the the penal system, the threat of the penal system, is just sort of a crude medical cure for some people, hmm. a crude medical stopgap. Sort of a it is the same thing as the the drugs that a that a schizophrenic will take, which are imperfect and have nauseous side effects. Uh, but nevertheless can make them realize that the people attacking them are hallucinations and, and therefore they, they stop having hallucinations and it can interact with society effectively. Uh, creating a penal system as a threat, as a deterrence force, as a deterrent cause, is like taking pills. It's, it, is a medical, it is a medical intervention in a sense uh, upon society. And it is imperfect in that regard. I, I think we could ultimately have better systems for doing it. It's, we're a long way off from having them. So we, we have to work with what we've got. But we do have to evaluate people's characters. So there is a difference, for example, between a schizophrenic who's off their meds and they're acting, they are, actually have a good character, they're just not accurately apperceiving what's really going on around them. And then you know, okay, we just gotta get them their meds and they'll be fine and then they'll grasp reality again uh, and they'll they'll be okay. Whereas like a psychopath, there is no cure for, there's no meds you can give them. They're always gonna be malicious. They're always gonna be someone you can never trust. So you can actually judge their character as inherently dangerous in a way that the the character of a, a schizophrenic is not inherently dangerous. And so these distinctions matter. And so we do still need to keep making these distinctions, but you're right, we do need to avoid this sort of pointless retributive sense of justice, where retribution doesn't serve any function, it doesn't have any, it doesn't have any uh, outcome measures, it doesn't have any goals, uh, where it's simply the satisfaction, the satiation of your own rage and 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 you know, hatred or whatever of someone. I, I agree that 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 is something we can do, and we can do that without telling people free will doesn't exist. We can just say, actually, I can give a whole bunch of arguments where retributive justice doesn't make any sense, even if your concept of libertarian free will is true. Uh, and so I, I think we can get rid of that uh, in the same way you can get rid of a lot of other mistaken folk beliefs and a lot of prejudices and things that that operate on society. Uh, and that's not the only one; there are many.
0: You know, wasn't uh, wasn't that long ago where most of the um, developed world took the position that people could choose whether or not they were heterosexual or homosexual, and it was a choice yeah. to be homosexual, and people were were maligned if they were homosexual, from chemical castration yeah, like Alan Turing yeah. through to mm-hmm. imprisonment and or which execution
1: co- even. Which is super funny because if you think it's a choice <laughs> and your your medical intervention is to actually physically alter someone to cause them to not be that anymore, mm. that's a self-contradiction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not sure Alan Turing saw the humor in that. but uh, No, of course not. Yeah. Well, we, we well know he didn't, <laughs> uh, as, as his unfortunate fate tells us. But um, And so I think the same way about... Rapists and pedophiles today. I think we will get to a point where we, as a society, we mm-hmm. say, look, you didn't choose to be a rapist or a pedophile any more than somebody chose to be a homosexual. This is the way your brain, your neural architecture is making you be, and we need to treat you uh, appropriately. Okay, we still need to remove you from society or try and prevent you from raping adults or children. Um, no, Question one: Are you a Catholic priest? Yes. Okay. Will you go over there into that line? <laughs> uh, but we, you know, I think it's treating those people then with a sense of empathy, I guess, yeah. uh, rather than uh, violent retribution.
1: Right. Uh, and the fear there is, and I agree with you. Like, like those two extremes. Between those two extremes, the one, the, the path you're advocating is the correct one. Uh, the fear people have and and thing to worry about is and and this can happen because we know people can run with bad ideas and do really bad things with them uh, is that uh, we don't want that thinking to result in the assumption that people cannot be persuaded or deterred that people are uh, it's that's the fatalism idea that that uh, you know a rapist is just always a rapist and there's nothing you can do you can't persuade them you can't change them you can't reform them they're just caused to be that way and that's just the way it is so let's just throw them in a hole forever Um, but really like admitting that uh you actually could educate these people you actually could maybe perform therapy on them you actually maybe could get them out of that mindset so that they become a better person through either persuasion therapy or deterrence uh that these things are causal forces that can change people to make decisions and therefore behave better and we know this for a fact like scientifically we know uh that if you start enforcing a particular traffic law uh the percentage of people who start obeying the laws goes up significantly from the from before the, when there was no law. So speed limits are a classic example that people sped all the time and, and drove dangerous rates. But when you started putting speed limits on, there's still people who speed, but the number of people who do is, is greatly reduced. So that actually just creating the system, the punitive system, the sort of system that gives you tickets and fines and stuff for, for violating this and all of this, actually physically causes people to regulate their behavior. And we do have to acknowledge that that, is, that works. Like people's, people can self-regulate their behavior and it's only in extreme cases that people actually lose the ability to self-regulate. And we do need to tell the difference between those two cases. When someone can self-regulate under the action of persuasion or deterrence and when someone cannot. And because those are two very different cases, they require different interventions, they require different solutions. Uh, so as long as we don't lose sight of that, I agree with what you're talking about is this, this idea of the let's let's uh, like people who say like, oh, I want rapists to be raped in prison. It's like, you really haven't really thought that through. Uh, like th- that is not really productive. There's nothing good about that. And it actually makes you kind of sound like a bad person because <laughs> now you're actually uh, advocating rape. And so like, aren't you against rape? Uh, this is very troubling to me. So uh, so yeah, th- so we do need to push back against that. But we also need to make sure that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater on that.
0: Okay, so let's try and sum up here, and then I'll throw you my um, what I think the big takeaway is. So we agree, uh, I think, Mm -hmm. that the way the brains operate is 100% causally determined. Now, what you call free will is the fact that even with that being true, brain still make decisions we still think we still act and that thinking and acting of the brain is what you, you refer to as compatibilist free will yeah we can still self-regulate yeah well, yeah okay the brain can self-regulate yeah when you say because when you say cause the causes
1: it's the causes are not just stuff that's just magically in the brain like it's not just genetics it's like I said before. It's it's everything that you do is the combination of two causes: desires and information. The information comes from outside your brain, and it does, of course. The only way you process information is by physically changing your brain. You have to change the information physically changes the architecture of your brain, and that actually has a physical causal effect on the decisions you make. Um, that's definitely true. But we do have to keep in mind that it's not just like you're. If you're born a certain way, you're stuck that way forever. In some respects, that's true, but in, in many other respects, it's not true. You. Information can actually cause you, and information can be uh, persuasion, information can be book learning, information can be just experiences in your environment, Uh, information can be just information processing that you've undergone yourself. But information is stuff that's not born into you, it's not genetic, uh, and it, it does come from outside in some fashion, uh, and it comes from thinking and processing.
0: Okay, and but- so
1: information is a causal force, and so we do have to include that, we have to mm. incorporate that into the causal system. But it's still true, like you said, it is. it all, it all ends with just brain architecture. Like the, the physical structure of your brain predetermines what decision you're going to make in the face of anything. Uh, and, and that includes the fact like information is going to change that architecture and therefore it's going to change the decisions you make. But it's still all causal. That That's absolutely true. And I think we completely agree on that.
0: I think the challenge that I have is with your terminology. When you say you can self-regulate, this is the place I always get to with people. They say, well, well, I can yeah. choose my thoughts. And then I have to go, well, well what is this I thing that you're talking about? Yeah. It gets back to this yeah. Cartesian theater. There's me and there's my brain. I go, no, there's no you looking at your brain. Right. No, you are the streets. brain. That's right. You are yes. the brain. Yeah, that's, right. that's all there is. And <laughs> yes. so what you're suggesting, not you, I'm talking about what I'm talking yeah. about people I'm talking to, what you're suggesting is there's one part of the brain that's controlling another part of the brain. They go, yes, absolutely. Go, right, so so part A of the brain is controlling part B of the brain. Yes. So tell me, what's controlling part A of the brain? They go, well, I am. I go, wait, 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 no, no. You just said that you're part A of the brain. What is controlling part A of the brain? Part A minus one? What's controlling that? It's turtles all the way down, right? It's this... I the, People struggle, I think, to come to terms with the fact that, that there is only the brain and it operates by chemistry. It's all it is. It's fucking chemistry. Your brain is chemistry. So when you say you can self-regulate, mm-hmm. I'm worried that people think, aha, see? Yes, I have, avoid that. Yeah, that's right. It is the brain self-regulating. The brain can change. Let's put it this way. The brain can change uh, and therefore the way that you think and act can change if it gets new inputs... But but whether or not it it will change its thinking and its action based on those inputs is determined by wholly by the neural architecture of the brain at the time that those inputs come in. I say to people all the time, look, okay, go drink a bottle of scotch and then I'll give you some inputs and we'll see whether or not (laughs) your your free will enables (laughs) you to react to those inputs as you would before we change the neural neural chemistry of your brain. I can... I've got identical twin sons that are 17. They have very, 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 very fucking similar DNA. (laughs) Yeah. Very similar life experiences up to this point. Lived in the same house, same parents, same thing, blah, blah, blah. I can give the two of them the same piece of information at the same time in the same way, and they will process it differently and do different things as a result of it. Because the way that information is processed depends on the neural architecture of their brain, yeah. which even though they have identical DNA, they've had slight different experiences over 17 years, right, and yeah. their neural architectures aren't identical. Yeah. so yeah. Well, The brain is,
1: brain is governed by nonlinear dynamics in its construction, so so even tiny little differences in experiences can, can result in large differences in brain structure. And yet we still know scientifically that uh, twins... Will do the same thing with the same information more often, statistically more often than any random two people. Uh, so, so there is still something there in that respect. But, but you're right. No, everybody's going to end up with slightly different brain architecture, uh, and and that's going to cause that's going to have an effect on how you process information. But you notice, like, if you if you educate both of them in critical thinking, and uh, it's highly likely that they're going to start making similar decisions in a lot of similar situations, if they realize that. If I apply this skill and I do it correctly and they, they you know learn the skill, uh, they're going to make better decisions about, for example, overcoming cognitive biases. You can actually educate someone in the existence of a cognitive bias, give them the tools for how to bypass that bias or how to work around it. And they're going to make better decisions as a result of it. If you give two people that same skill, they're both going to improve in the same way. So, like, the, so the, it's not like random in the sense. Like, you give someone information, and you give another person the same information. That they're all everybody's going to just react randomly to the information. There's still some structure there and some rationality. But I think it comes down to like the difference between why are we and we're all we're just as causally determined as you know pigs or wolves or any pick any animal chickens let's just say chickens we're just as causally determined as chickens and yet we can engage in and maintain social contracts and chickens cannot chickens would certainly benefit from being able to do that but they they can't and so what is the difference between us and the difference between us is not this libertarian free will it's not contra causal free will that makes the difference the difference is that we can our information processing is much more sophisticated. We can understand things that they cannot. We can understand the whole system of cause and effect that's influencing us. And consequently, we can think about, okay, this is how the system is affecting me. If I make these different decisions, this is how the system will behave differently. I want that system to act that way, so I'm going to change my decisions. So you can actually use the causal system to actually better fit the environment which is the entire history of civilization right this is why what makes humans different from other animals so far uh is this fact that we can do this but it is true that you're you're, you're right like you can talk about and it's obvious that this is true that this difference exists that humans can do this and other animals cannot uh and and the mistake is if someone's going to say oh yeah yeah we can do that because we have contra causal free will and it's oh shit no fuck no <laughs> that's not the reason <laughs> and and that's that's scientifically wrong right so you want people to understand the actual scientific reason humans can do these things and other animals cannot uh and and it is not free will it's not contra-causal free will it's other things and that i think gets closer when people start understanding what those other things are and that they are the real things that make this difference they'll start to become less afraid of this idea that what they think free will is doesn't exist
0: yeah i think the difference between us and chickens is that Kahneman system one system two thinking the prefrontal <laughs> cortex and how that developed and our ability yep. to well, process have- consciously process yeah but not they do but not as big as ours right no no exactly yeah
1: um chickens can compare do-
0: us to octopuses maybe <laughs> octopuses they're gonna take over uh no it, well no octopuses
1: see octopus brain is almost entirely devoted to running its camouflage system so octopuses are actually not as intelligent as for example or is not as uh, i should say socially intelligent as for example dolphins or elephants um or even uh what is it um african greys like the the, that one particular parrot seems to be extraordinarily uh smart in that regard but uh they, they still don't have it quite at the level and you know of course chimpanzees we know is a similar thing but um they don't have it at the level that they can enter and engage uh, social contracts. We we have Coco the gorilla could almost do that like a little bit, but it, yeah. it's it's really just borderline. And, and yeah, that is really just it's an information processing threshold. It, it's straightforward. They have a better processor, um, you know. They're they're Intel and or, or they're they're like you know, uh, they're running on basic and we're running on you know iOS 50 million or whatever.
0: <laughs> so. Let's wrap it up, Richard. And I wanted to talk to you about why I think free will, the question of whether or not we have free will, contra-causal free will, or libertarian free will. Um, And I haven't seen this anywhere in your writings or the material that you sent me. I may have missed it because I didn't have time to go through all of it. Forgive me if I have. Sure, yeah. When I was introduced to... So this is a topic when I was, as I said, 18 or 19, something like that. And I became fascinated with it, or maybe even a little bit obsessed with it for quite a few years. When I finally accepted that my brain was 100% causal, and therefore all of my thinking and actions were causal, and I realized that the same was true for everybody around me. My, my parents, my alcoholic father who beat me when I was a kid, um, my, my mother who, who kind of let that happen, I guess, to a point, um, my girlfriends, my bosses, my friends, everyone around me. What I realized was it was very difficult for me to have any deep sense of anger or resentment towards the people around me and the actions that they had done, which had hurt me. Because I realized that their thinking and their actions were determined by the neural architecture of their brains at the time. And so it didn't seem very rational or logical to carry resentment with me when somebody did something that they were forced to do by the neural architecture of their brain. And and. Conversely, the things, the mistakes that I had made, the things that I had done and continued to do in my life, which had negative consequences either towards me or towards other people, where I had hurt people around me because of my words or my actions, the feeling of guilt that I might otherwise have carried with me was severely diminished when I realized that, well, I did those things in that moment because of the neural architecture of my brain. So not to say I don't Wish it hadn't been different, or that I could have avoided hurting other people. I don't fail to recognise that my actions hurt those people, but I realized that there was no other possible thing that could have been done in that moment, based on the neural architecture of my brain at that point in time. So, I've, for the last thirty odd years, I've, I've found that my, I have very limited ability to feel anger or resentment towards people, and to carry around guilt. And also, to a large extent, fear and anxiety for the future, because I accept that uh, a completely causal perspective of what's going to happen in the future, including with my own life. These are, to me, the big things that fuck a lot of people up. Mm -hmm. Most of the people I've met that are very deeply emotionally and psychologically screwed up. It results from anger, resentment, guilt, and fear. And I think those things are all predicated on this folk idea of contra-causal free will. Not all, to a large extent. They believe that people, including themselves and the people around them, are in control of their thoughts and their actions. And they could have chosen differently, but they chose to hurt me. And therefore, they carry around these things the fuck them up. The, the, the resentment fucks you up. So I want to get your thoughts on that. And for me, and for the people I know around me who also don't believe in contra free will, libertarian free will, it's provided a lot of freedom, a lot, of, lot more serenity, a lot less anger. You know, I've had people I know who have had carried anger and bitterness towards their parents or, or former partners, former friends for decades. But when they've gone through this process and realized that libertarian free will can't possibly be true, never has been true, never will be true, it enabled them to let go of a lot of that anger and resentment Mm -hmm. and let go a lot of their guilt as well. Um, What's your take on all that? I agree. We should
1: disabuse people of two uh, incorrect beliefs, and one is the libertarian free will concept. If you can get someone there – and that does, like like I has been saying, like that does require getting them to confront their fears, uh, and I think that's important. The other side, though, is you want to get them to avoid fatalism because fatalism is just the opposite, the flip side of that coin. It's just as destructive – uh, and just as crippling, and just as false. Uh, and so you want people to find the middle ground on that. And so you take, for example, like anger. I think I think anger is important as an emotion. Anger is what defends us and others. Uh, it assesses someone's danger. Uh, like you're basically assessing someone's character, the, the likelihood of them causing harm to you and others, or continuing to do so. And then you make better decisions based on that. Now, when you take that anger and turn it into... Something that that's going to result in you you know wasting resources or or you just constantly dwelling on the anger, then it's going too far. It's lost its utility. So we we don't want to get rid of anger. We still need anger. We need guilt, for example. I mean, literally, the absence of guilt is practically the definition of psychopathy. Uh, Obviously, we need guilt. It's when we dwell on guilt excessively, when it's lost its utility, that's the problem. We still need to have this sense of guilt as a motivator. To get us to become better people, it, it is a causal factor in us that actually causes us to aspire to be better people uh, and to aspire to, for example, make right the wrongs we've done. And, and that's it. It is a causal factor, and, and it serves that function. So we still want that. Uh, we just don't want too much of it. We don't want it to be irrational or or excessive. It has to be uh, do. It has to be serving its function basically. So we have to be uh, you know paying attention to that. And then, of course, any therapist who does rational emotive behavior. Therapy with someone, we'll, we'll go through exactly what I just explained. Is like emotions are important, but you do need to process them. Sometimes they're excessive. Sometimes they're wrong. You have to figure out which is which and how to change your emotions and stuff. So so uh, RBT is like a major, uh, one of the most successful forms of therapy there is. Uh, and but we also want to avoid this fatalism idea. This that your past did not doom you to repeat it is an example of that. Like you were talking about, you know, your the past of being abused and things like that. Um, and, and you know how that there's this common assumption that uh, you know if if you were abused as a child then you will become an abuser. If you have the sense that it's just doomed that you're just fated to be that way, as opposed to doing it the other way and saying the self awareness of what caused you to be the way you are can actually cause you to self regulate better and to actually be be less like that. To actually say, you know what, I'm gonna get away from this because I recognize that this is bad. I don't want this. I see what's causing it. I can now now that I see what's causing it, I can dodge that cause or try to and start changing things in my life where I'm going to be a better person than I would have been had I not self-regulated, had, had I not been self-aware of what's caused me to be the way I am. So self-regulation is still important. It's still valuable. Uh, and again, that's RBT. That's what, will, what, a, what a rational emotive behavior therapy is uh is going to do it's going to teach you how to take better control of yourself and not just be pushed around on the surf of the sea of your emotions but actually start analyzing your emotions figure out when they're useful when they're appropriate when they're not and actually make better decisions so we still want to have this idea that people can self-regulate because it's very important to society it's very important to civilization that people be able to do that uh but it does not require this belief that you are immune to causation in fact it requires the belief that you are caused to be what you are and therefore you do need to seek out better causes and you did recognize what things have caused you to be the way you are. And so you can analyze those and say, do is that really how I want to be? And that analysis in itself will cause you uh possibly to become a different kind of person, to start evolving towards a different sort of person. So so we want all that to go. But I, I think the biggest thing is when we talk about free will, usually it's it's comes down to uh the the legal system and uh how we treat people, how we decide uh whether we're gonna evaluate someone one way or not. And it is important for us to tell the difference between when our autonomy is being violated and when we actually our autonomy, when our autonomy is being respected. So we do need to have some sort of way of talking about that. We need some sort of language to talk about the absence of autonomy and the presence of autonomy and degrees of autonomy. And we could just replace it all with autonomy. So let's get rid of free will and we'll just talk about autonomy. But what will happen if you do that, let's say if we can magically do that and everybody just forgets the phrase free will and all, all the only thing anybody ever uses is the word autonomy, then you'd suddenly start people having this, this weird belief that autonomy is some sort of contra-causal thing. And they'll be talking about contra-causal autonomy, libertarian autonomy, compatibilist autonomy. We'd be in the same debate all over again. So the changing a word doesn't really do anything. What we need to do is get at the concept so that people understand the concepts so that it is deterministic, but it is not fatalistic. Mm-hmm. That you can self-regulate, but it does not mean that you are immune to causation. In fact, you need to understand the causes of what what is causing you to be how you are in in order to change who you are. You 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 need to understand causation and, and how causality is important and how it limits you, but also how it it uh, how it frees you. Like cause the ability understanding causal laws gives you the power to cause things to happen because now you understand what causes a set in motion to bring about a certain effect. So understanding causal determinism is both freeing and limiting depending on the circumstances you're in. And I think it's important for people to understand that. And that's what we really need to get across.
0: Yeah, when my children were born, I went and worked with a psychiatrist for a year to because I realized that I didn't want to be the kind of father my father was to me. Right, I realized that there was a bunch of programming in my brain that mm-hmm. I needed to dig out and uh, uh, process and think about, actively think about, well, yeah. how am I going to be different as a parent, right? What are the tactics? Yeah. what are the approach vectors I can take? even though I don't believe in free will, I still realize that uh, that my I need to change my architecture. The brain architecture is fluid. It, yeah, it can be changed. It's plastic right yeah mm-hmm. it can be changed and uh, I think that's a good um, you're right. It's a very important point. People jump to the conclusion that if I have no free will, I can't change. Things can't get better or different, and that's just not what we're saying. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I tell you, that was the best conversation on free will I've had (laughs) to date. Dr. Carrier, thank you for coming on. Give people a plug again. Remind them of your website, where they can get your course and your books.
1: Yeah, at uh, richardcarrier.info. That's .info. Uh, My blog, my Twitter account, my Facebook, everything is there. But down the right side on the margin, you can see uh, categories. You can go select classes, and you can see a list of all the classes that I've taught. And the latest one up there, the first one will pop up, will be the one that starts in March. And that will tell you all about the course and how you can join us. And I think it would be awesome to have lots of people come in and – pose challenges, pose questions, like any anything you want, uh, let's bring it up. Let's, ha- let's have a lot of lively discussion and uh, challenging thought and learning. I think it'd be great. So,
0: yeah, for people who are interested in that, definitely check that out. Great. Thank you. And uh, I also recommend Richard's other books, uh, Proving History and On the Historicity of Jesus, two that I've read recently that are fantastic. My book, if you're interested in my thoughts on free will, it's The Three Illusions. Go to CameronRiley.com or just Google The Three Illusions. You'll find it. Nowhere near as long as Richard's books. In fact, the entire (laughs) length of my book is probably shorter than the introduction on Richard's books, and there's nowhere near as much maths either in my book. You'll be happy to know. Thanks very much, Richard. That was great. Appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. That was awesome.